Welcome to Totally Lit, a monthly podcast celebrating reading, writing and creating literature. I'm your host Kai and thank you for listening. Continuing with our GenreCon interview series, I have a wonderful interview for you with horror writer Karen Warren. Shirley Jackson Award winner Karen Warren published her first short story in 1993 and has had fiction in print every year since. She was recently given the Peter McNamara Lifetime Achievement Award and was guest of honour at World Fantasy 2018. StokerCon 2019 and GeyserCon 2019. She has also been guest of honour at Conflux in Canberra and GenreCon in Brisbane. She has published five multi-award winning novels, Slights, Walking the Tree, Mystification, The Grief Hole and Tide of Stone, and seven short story collections, including the multi-award winning Through Splintered Walls. Her most recent short story collection is A Primer to Karen Warren from Dark Moon Books. Her most recent novella, Into Bones Like Oil, Meerkat Press, was shortlisted for a Shirley Jackson Award and the Bram Stoker Award, winning the Aurelius Award. Her stories have appeared in both Ellen Datlow's and Paula Garan's Year's Best Anthologies. Hi, Karen. Welcome to Totally Lit. Thank you for joining me. Oh, hi, Kai. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start off by chatting to you about your workshop at GenreCon this year, Escaping the Monster, How to Use the Tropes of Horror to Write Stories that Resonate. That's running on the Friday, February 18. Did you want to tell me a little bit about what attendees can expect from that workshop? Yeah, so it's just something that came up and I've been talking with a couple of people, different groups that run workshops, how the emotions that you use in horror fiction and uh, it can translate really well into other fiction as well and the level of passion, I guess, that you bring to it and the way that things like fear of uh, loss and grief and guilt fear of change and fear of the other are all things that translate into tropes in horror fiction like the haunted house where somebody died a hundred years ago and is seeking revenge or the graveyard where the hand comes out of the grave is about grief that sort of thing Uh, so it's a little bit it's, it's trying to translate some of those trying to understand why we have these tropes that appear over and over again in horror fiction and horror films, why we use them and why they're important and how you can use those emotions in other all other sorts of fiction. Excellent. Okay. Now, listeners can purchase tickets from www.genrecon.com.au. Genrecon this year is moved online using the platform Gather. The very important question I have to ask is, have you created your own avatar yet? <laughs> I did a quick one. I need, I need to go in and have another good look and see what I want to do with myself. You have to decide if you want to go complete fantasy avatar or mm. try and replicate yourself, don't you, whenever you do these things. What are you going to do? At the moment, because I, I have chatted to Marianne, De Pierre's as well, and she's got a pirate hat. I'm hoping there might be the choice of a mohawk. Um, (laughs) Did they have options? Could you be like something scary? They didn't. I don't think so. I don't think so. It was all... I mean, I think you could probably do a combination. Like there was kind of a slightly creepy long red dress that okay. sort of thing, mm. which I think you could maybe pretend was a bit creepy. But, yeah, I don't think they had um, skeletons and that sort of thing in there. But I'll have another look. They may have added some. I think that was just when I had a look, it was at the early stages. So I don't know why maybe... the concept has tickled my fancy that you can create <laughs> your own oh, avatar. 
I just got one created for me for Second Life. I did a Second Life book club mm-hmm. and they wanted to know what I wanted to be. And I decided I wanted to be a very glamorous mouse. Oh, okay. So they made me a glamorous mouse and she's quite fabulous. That sounds so, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun just figuring out what little elements of your persona you can uh, represent in this very simplistic kind of way, I suppose. And I had been researching your website and I saw that you attend a lot of cons and, and conferences and things like that. How have you found it during COVID? Oh, it's been, I hate it. I've missed it so much. And I look, I'm really happy they've figured out a really good way to manage genre con, mm. of course, doing it the way they're doing it. But the genre cons I have been to, the it was just so wonderful to meet people, hang out with people, have those. It's all the uh, random conversations, I think, that you yes. that I miss, mm. the corridor conversations and all that sort of thing. And I heard you saying, I listened to your interview earlier with Craig, and I heard you talking about feeling anxious about talking to people. Yes, I'm, um, I'm the worst. <laughs> well, no, but everybody is, and it's so hard, and it's hard enough. It's hard in person, but in person you can kind of see when there's a gap in conversation and then jump in. So I was thinking that for me, please just come and say hello. Mm. Like I think I, I want every, and I'm sure that everyone there is going to be in that circumstance. You know, when we're wandering around with our little avatars, just come and say hi. And I don't know, my trigger is always to ask somebody a question rather than talk about myself if I'm approaching someone. That sort of thing. So I was asked what they're working on or what they've got coming out or, you know, anything like that, I suppose. Yeah, I'm trying to ditch the feeling anxious or, sh- or shy, which is really anxiety, I yes. guess. Because you miss out on so much when you, you do. don't put yourself forward. So I've really yeah. been working on that. And um, yes, I found too, the more I go to things, the more I meet people. And then I'll go to something and know five or ten people and feel no problem at all. So it's really yes. just, yeah, getting, I just need to get over it really. <laughs> well, but everybody, everybody, everybody feels the same way. Mm. I've heard people say, and I can't remember who first said it, that in any convention, online or in real life, it takes three for you to start to feel comfortable. Mm. So the first one, you're absolutely terrified. You don't think you know anyone. The second, you know, a couple of people. And then by the third one, there's familiar mm. faces, you know, more people than you did previously. And there's always somebody who can say, oh, hi, how are you going? How's your year been? That sort of thing. And I think it really, for me, was a bit of imposter syndrome as well. At first, when I was sort of deciding I wanted to write and be published and I was going to events, I didn't have anything published. And so yeah. I was sort of like, oh... I'm coming to this, but I'm not really a writer yet. But whereas now I've sort of had a bit of traction. I'm like, okay, yeah, actually, I belong here. <laughs> yes. Well, everybody does, though. You know, you, everyone will have those feelings. But mm. something, that's why I love uh, Jean Nicole, not to rabbit on about it, Jean Nicole, too much. But I love that it is, really is designed to bring together newer writers and more established writers, is the whole point. That it, all the genres come together for one thing, but also newer writers and more established writers and trying to have a level playing field where you can just talk about ideas and thoughts and concepts and mm. all those sorts of things, which regardless of if you've been published or not, we've still got ideas and thoughts yeah. and stories that we want to write. And that's what, you know, they're my favourite conversations with other writers. And everybody has to start somewhere, like, yeah, yes. you've got to take your first steps. Yes, yeah, yeah. And definitely community is one of the ways to do it. You just you can hear about opportunities and it just makes you feel like you're not crazy, which you sometimes can feel yes. if you're just out in the ordinary world and people aren't suddenly 
mid-sentence coming up with an idea for a story or having to write down a bit of dialogue or whatever. So, yeah, it's nice being all that. So, yeah, I put, so to answer your original question, I'm very much missing the in-real-life conventions but trying to make the most of mm. the online ones until we can get back to it oh, it'd be fantastic when we can all safely reconnect and see each other face to face yes yes we're hoping to have our canberra convention in october conflux great which we've been having for about 15 years now but have missed the last two years so we're really hoping we can pull it off this year mm. now you're quite a prolific author you've got Hundreds of short stories published. It's three novels. You've oh, got five, five novels. Five, five novels, novels and seven short story collections. So why horror? Um, it's just these are the stories that present themselves to me and always have. Even as a young child, I was fascinated by the darker side. I was fascinated by ghosts and by the afterlife and by trying to explain creepy noises I had a lot of nightmares too, which I think a lot of people, a lot of people do, but a lot of writers do as well, I think. So a little bit early on was me trying to uh, sort through the nightmares and take control of them, I suppose, to a certain extent. Right. And you do write science fiction and fantasy as well? Yeah, a little, not less fantasy. Um, science fiction often has a little bit of a dark uh, mm. twist to it as well. It's often um, a little bit nihilistic, I suppose, a sort of fiction, science fiction that I'm looking at. I tend to think about things like uh, crime and punishment and how that may look in the future, how our morals may change and how human behaviour might change, that sort of thing. Just exploring human nature and where we, where we might end up. Mm, it is interesting to think about what's coming. I, I must admit, especially over the last couple of years, where it feels like that dystopic future might actually be upon us I'm like oh I wonder how what will come out of this what writing will come out of what we've just been through yes yeah well look in some ways um I, I hope a lot of it does go the other way and we try and find the positives in human nature and community and that sort of thing mm. as well rather than just descending into it um I think we've all got it in us I say that when I still write horror but I think I do often have a an element of hope, I guess, running through mm. it and certainly an element of love and connection because I think fiction doesn't work without those things yeah. and certainly horror doesn't work without those things. You can't grieve and feel a sense of loss if you haven't loved or care about, cared about somebody. Mm. So I try to have that, that sense of love and human connection running through anything that I write as well. Do you have a favourite character that you have created? <laughs> oh, it's such a hard question. Because I've created a lot, and it's quite often the most recent one that I love the most. I love um, Teresa, who is my character in The Grief Hole, who she knows how you're going to die by the ghosts who haunt you. Um, and I've been, I mean, I loved writing her in the novel, but then I've also been re-exploring her because I'm working with somebody on a screenplay for that. So kind of re-looking at her life and who she is. But I've got a very big affection for Stevie, who's my serial killing a uh, woman in slights, which is the first novel I had published, oh, which has just been re-released. Girl released. power in that. Yeah, a bit of girl power, and she's very funny. She pretty much says what she thinks and has some terrible experiences and does some terrible things, but she's also lots of fun. Um, I had, a, I had kind of had fun just letting letting her go and cutting her off the leash and seeing mm. where she goes to. And so, does that mean when you're writing, how much plotting do you do beforehand, or do you just let it? come as you write 
It really depends. I'm writing a novella at the moment, which is going to be about twenty-five to 30,000 words, and I'm plotting the absolute hell out of this one, mm. which I don't usually do. Usually I'll just start writing. But this one is quite a, um, quite a complex story with lots of layers, and it's got a... It's got a, um, a gimmick in it that actually requires me to know what I'm doing. Right. Um, yeah, so I need to know, no, I know, I need to know where I'm going before I get going, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I've had to really lay down the framework very specifically with this mm-hmm. one. And now I'm going through and filling in all, filling in all the gaps and filling the meat in that sort of thing. Um, so, so sometimes I will just go, like, for a larger thing, I will try to have a reasonable idea of where I'm going and what needs to happen when. But for shorter pieces, often I'll just write, um, let the subconscious sort of power through and get the first draft down just to see what I end up with. Mm. Like, I quite like just seeing where it goes and then, you know, it's a, not a very efficient way to write, to be honest, because <laughs> I end up quite often doing four or five drafts of something. Mm. But it's the way I get to that individual voice and um, an individual story, which is what I'm always looking for. Mm. And with plotting the one you're working on at the moment, did you already know how, like, how you wanted to sit down and work that out, or did you need to go away and do a bit of learning around? <sighs> how you wanted to structure it? Uh, no, I had to. Well, it's it's inspired by um, a series of cigarette cards, to, the, the, just to give you tell you what the uh, the gimmick is in it. So each 24 different cigarette cards, which are those little cards I used to have in the 30s and the 40s yep. that you'd get with a packet of cigarettes with really amazing little bits of history or bits of industry, etc., on them. So that's kind of provided my structure. So really the structure was there and it was just a matter of me. I've, I've actually made little cards for myself and I've moved them around so many times, you know, to figure out what needs to happen when and, you know, somebody disappears, but do they happen at this age or at this age? And, so it's really been more about that, yeah. So but no, I, don't, I didn't really have to learn anything, I don't think, but it's more about me really focusing myself and a lot of using thinking. the thinking, yeah, and using this visual aid of actually having the physical cards to move around and swap mm. around, and that's really helped. I don't usually do that, but in this circumstance, because the story is so much tied to each of the different cards, mm. yeah, it's been really, really, really interesting. I'm just, you know, trying to figure out who I'm going to kill off, who I'm going to keep alive. <laughs> Figuring out who tells the story, I think, is one of the hardest parts in any time I set going to tell a story because that totally changes what story you tell. Like, yeah. I know I know what's going to happen or I know what the twist is or whatever, but uh, who tells the story really changes the nature of that story, of course. So, um, And so sometimes that's the subconscious thing that I do, that I'll just get that first draft down and a, a voice will start to emerge. So in this case, it's the younger daughter of a large family is the voice that emerged at the end of it and became the strongest little voice squeaking in mm. my ear. Um, yeah, that's fun, but I love all that part of it. I love that, you know, mm. trying to solve all those little problems and things. I've asked you about your favourite character. Do you have a favourite story out of all the stories you've written? Oh, gosh, that's really hard too. No, I don't know. I really, I like a lot of them, I think. I just, it's really hard to choose. Even going back to my very first published story, I'm still really proud of that one. I guess I've always tried to have get my best work out there. Did you want to tell our listeners about how you got started? What What was it that made you decide you wanted to be a writer? 
Well, I always did, like from about the age of five or six. I used to write on any greeting cards, and my parents have still got a couple of them. I would say, you know, happy birthday from Karen, famous writer. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. From really from about six or seven years old, probably. And then lost track of the idea and didn't really think it was possible for quite a long time. Then when I was, I think, about 14, a family friend gave me a list of places that I could submit stories to. Mm-hmm. And just that, just the process of that, of, of having a list of stories and then being able, and this is, you know, in early days, well, well, well before internet or anything like that. Um, it was that sense that she actually believed that I could do something and that it was possible, mm. made me write more stories. And I did send a couple of stories off at that stage and, I, and didn't have any success. I wrote a novel, though, when I was between 14 and 16, a very short novel of 50,000 words, which is a lot for that age, mm. really. And then just was really just pottering away and not really thinking that I would be able to do anything with it, but still sending stories off. And it was always just in the back of my mind. And then sold the first story through a random letter that appeared in my uh, letterbox. A local publisher was wanting stories, horror stories written by women. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. And sold that story. And it's kind of been a a progression from there ever since. So it took a long time. Like, as you were were talking about imposter syndrome, it certainly took me a long time to sell that first story. Like, I think I was 28 before I sold my first story. And that's having written seriously, really, for 14 years, probably, and trying properly and seriously to get published for about five years. So I, really I like the way you say you talk about selling your story as well. In is a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm trying to get published." Yeah, right. right. And yeah, so oh, it's almost putting the onus on the other end of the process, yeah, where right. I think selling yeah. a story has a bit more uh, ownership and. It sounds businesslike as well. Oh, right. Um, I think oh, that's so interesting, isn't it? It's always, I guess it's just always the way I've thought of it, mm-hmm. is that I'll sell the next book and I'll sell. Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting you're pointing that out. How- and it is really what we should be doing, like thinking of it as a business, especially if we want to make money. Yes, yes. Well, look, and to be honest, I, I still say selling a story, um, even if, you know, early on I got almost nothing. Like I might have mm. got a few dollars or a couple of copies of the magazine that I was in or that sort of thing. So I say sell. I, I consider everything a sale, even if I only got a few dollars for it. Yeah, and I don't regret those. I know people, you should always, you know, if you possibly can get paid, and I would always say try to sell to the more higher paying markets first but sometimes a story is just right for a little small press magazine and I don't you know I really don't regret any of those and all of them help build me as a writer all of them help build my reputation Mm. so yeah I'm probably sort of speaking against what a lot of people believe always get paid for your work and I do believe that as much as possible but sometimes sometimes you know a few dollars or a few copies of the magazine is fine Mm. I think when you're first starting out, yeah, I still and I still will give stories for charity. Like there's, I've been in a number of charity anthologies, and I would donate a story for them. And that first novel that you wrote was that a horror novel as well? Yeah, so the first novel was Slights, the serial killer novel. Right. That, that was just a short story. That yeah. one, I yeah, the first one I stole. That was a that was a horror. Yeah, oh. horror. So you've was, always written on the dark side. Yes, yeah, and even when I try not to, I've been challenged every now and then to just write an ordinary story and something will creep in, there'll be a shadow or will <laughs> lean over my shoulder and tap me on the shoulder and say, oh, no, you're going to do a twist or whatever. Yeah, so there's always just, a, I think there's always just a little element of it creep. And people expect it now too, it's very hard not to. The latest novel I've written, I've 
it's more of a crime, definitely more of a crime novel that I'll have an announcement about that before too long, but it'll be another couple of months before I can say anything. And it started off really being just a straight crime novel, but by the end I had just so many people say, no, you need to, please, please don't let us down. So <laughs> in the end it's, it combines a little bit of both right. horror and, and just straight crime. Mm. And if, because I, I probably don't read a lot of horror, I do probably watch more horror than I read, if you wrote, say, a crime novel that just has a murder in it, is that that wouldn't be considered horror, though, would it? Well, no. There's a lot of discussion about that. I think if, it, if it's very graphic, one of the things that I think is that in horror, the bad person isn't always caught, perhaps. No. So I think a crime novel where they're caught and the process is about catching that, that person that would be definitely crime. If perhaps it's like the, the murderer's point of view and maybe they get away with it, then you would definitely veer more into the horror the horror realms. I think it, it depends on levels of violence and that sort of thing, I think. The moral fibre shown in, throughout. And what yeah. about supernatural themes? Does it need to have supernatural themes to be horror or...? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it can just be an extreme violent sort of thing okay. if you don't have the supernatural stuff yeah there's a there's a whole little area called grim dark i think which is quite often is supernatural but not always mm. yes yeah, so it's a fine line there's the genre parameters i think my the panel i'm on is a little bit about what genre means and what does it mean when we cross genres and that sort of stuff so yeah i think any to me anything that really disturbs you and uh disquiet you i think yep. can be considered horror okay Mm. But also, and obviously it can be both as well. It can be a crime novel, but it can be... Yeah. You know, like something like American Psycho, mm. um, I think, is a really good example. Like, in theory, it's just a straight serial killer type novel, but it really is quite horrendous, and I would definitely consider that horror mm. because the elements and because of the point of view, uh, what happens in it, all that sort of thing. So now I read something interesting about you, that you love reality television. <laughs> What is your favourite show? <laughs> well, look, I don't watch as much anymore. I was just talking with a friend actually just yesterday about it. It takes so much emotional attachment and devotion to watch a reality show. Mm. Survivor is by far my favourite. Oh, I really, really one. love Survivor. I haven't watched it for a little while um, just because I just I just haven't got the emotional space to devote as much as mm. I need to to watch it. Um, and I really love the first couple of seasons of Big Brother as well. Yeah. Um, it's just, and both of those are just, I'm so fascinated by how a circumstance can change and a group can change when someone comes and goes. Mm. So somebody leaves a group and the whole group changes. Yeah. And then another person leaves and it all changes again. So I'm really more fascinated by that in, or any reality TV that I watch, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Human drama. Yeah, human <laughs> drama and how we respond to each other and how we we think we're being honest to ourselves, but we all do change the way we speak and the way we behave depending on mm. who's around us. It, almost everybody does. It is so true because some some people bring out the worst in you and others bring out the best in you. It's so true. It's so true. And sometimes it takes you a while to realise that person brings out the worst in you and mm. you can try to avoid them after that. <laughs> or just try and you know re react differently, but yeah, no, I don't. I definitely don't watch as I mean, there's so much else on now mm. on TV now too that um, I don't watch as much as I used to. But I am still a fan, and I totally understand the obsession with it. And it's even the manipulation of editing and all that sort of stuff. It's 
editing to affect people's opinions and mm, all that stuff, yeah, which definitely yeah. still goes on with Married at First Sight in particular mm. and all those sort of ones. The way it's edited is definitely manipulative, and mm. I find that really fascinating as well. Well, it's all about the dollars, isn't it? They, yes. Yeah, to yeah. keep people watching, but also that they're keeping the dollars coming in from the advertising. <laughs> yes, that's right. And they want people to be talking on social media and having big fights and all that sort of mm. thing because that's all part of the buzz, that, you know, that you need to make something bigger than than otherwise, I guess. And it might reveal a little bit about my dark side. The sorts of shows I like to watch in the reality genre are more like hoarders or oh, yes. catfish <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or there's yeah, one yeah. intervention and I I sometimes think oh my goodness and I just sitting back enjoying somebody else's misery but yes. I think what I'm seeing is the real human tragedy and yeah. I'm really rooting for them all to oh, get no, through no. and improve their lives so yes no it's yeah, fascinating I'm, I'm but it's all grist for the writer's mill too isn't it like yes. you're probably watching it like I do too I'd watch the hoarders and all of those just for little details of character and all that sort of thing mm. I certainly would watch um some of those jail tv ones like I, quite, yep. I don't I sometimes will watch those ones and they're all so sad and tragic mm. But I will watch some of those just to get a little turn of phrase or just see how someone sits in their chair. And mm. it's all those little character details that you get when you're watching a real person, you know, in a circumstance like that, mm. I suppose. And I think in our everyday lives, many of us would never have those experiences if we hadn't seen them on no. television shows. So no, no. it's good for research and inspiration. Yes. Yeah, and you do hope you do hope for them, you know. Hope that it comes good at one stage or another. The hoarders is very sad, isn't it? Uh, fascinating. My, my husband just he he's always giving me a sideways glance. He's like, "Why are you watching that?" Because <laughs> he get just gets um, like a chill he can't handle seeing how yeah. messy they are. Yeah, stuff. right. Oh gosh. Um, yes, but that's a slow progression, isn't it? Like they didn't send out, they didn't set out to have a house like that. No, no. They didn't start with that house like that. It's that slow progression, like that mm. so that slow creep of not being able to throw anything out, and everything is precious. And yes, yes. Okay. And he's also very concerned about my true crime podcast addiction. So. Oh yes, <laughs> but I get well, lots of yeah information from those as well. Yeah, Although okay. I kind of I don't like the ones that just seem to be a bit gratuitous and making money off people's misery. Yeah, yeah. But I, I am very interested in the way people live and the way why they do the things they do. Yes. Yes. No, definitely, I definitely I have a story one of my stories is called Furtherest which is set in the beach and one of my obsessions or fascinations like many people is how many children have gone missing in Australian mm. beaches. And this was talking about the Wanda Beach yes. girls mm. and how they dress up, which I think they do. They have done this pretty They did it for Daniel, um, that boy that disappeared. Oh, Daniel, Daniel Morecambe. Yeah. yeah. Dressing up uh, dummies. Like they had seven dummies. They, they interviewed everybody and there were seven people that couldn't be found who were at the beach at this time that mm. other people had identified. So they took, they got seven dummies and they dressed them up in the clothing that had been described. And there's a picture of the family looking at these seven dummies. And one of those, one of those people probably killed the girls. Mm. And that just gave me such chills and yes. it was just so fascinating and so tragic and all, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And those unsolved ones, it's unlikely they'll ever be solved either. Yes. And I think those ones resonate so much because yes. it's so just unknown and 
too long ago before yes. anything to change. No, now. that's right. Um, I mean, I guess every now and then they will find like DNA and that sort of thing. They years later they do a DNA like they just caught that was it the Greece like someone that's called the Green River Killer or someone yeah, they just yeah, killed, yeah. yeah. Um, which is yeah fascinating. So sometimes, so then it's so long past. I mean, this is why I'm so fascinated with crime and punishment. Like it's so long past the time when these crimes happen, and that person has had fifty or forty years of freedom. Mm, it makes uh, you wonder how they live with themselves. It's yes. sort of like how are they yeah. sleeping at night? Yeah, well, that they secret? just they obviously can. So it's obviously they they feel about it differently. Yeah. Um, okay, so now I have a few quick fire questions which are just some little questions to get to know you as a person a little bit more yeah. so did you have a favorite book growing up oh i read so voraciously but i've only just i've just got a new bookcase on the weekend and i just put in my big collection of enid blyton books famous five yes. and my agatha christie's that my grandmother gave me oh amazing so Loved, you know, loved every single one of those. I, it would be very hard to pick one. Maybe, um, and then there were none. The Agatha Christie mm. one set on the island was one of the f- books that I read that I just absolutely loved. Yeah. Um, she but was every so famous clever. five, too. I, oh, so clever. So clever. But from a very young age, I was reading famous fives. I ended up, you know, ruining my eyesight reading famous fives. I just adored them so much. So, yeah, those, those two women are hugely influential to me yes. as a reader and a writer. And, if you could be any book character, who would it be? <laughs> oh, maybe George from The Famous Five. Oh, good choice. Yes. She was so fabulous yes. and strong and, yeah, not Anne. I never would have been Anne. No. no. I don't think anyone left, wanted to be Anne. <laughs> uh, left behind doing the cooking. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and what are you reading right now? Have you got a book? on your bookside table at the moment? I am reading Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me, which is a 1955 book that a friend actually just sent me. Yeah, so enjoying that. It's very staccato, sharp sort of writing, very dark. She actually sent it to me because she started reading and found it too dark and too awful. No, thank you. Yes. But <laughs> I it's interesting. I found like it. a line in there. Stephen King is quoted as saying, um, you know, a writer who's all, often copied but never replicated or something like that. And there's a line in this book which is directly in The Shining, in part in the book, wow. but direct okay. almost quote for quote in the movie, which is really interesting. So he was inspired. Yes. May have read yes. That. I love that. So if you could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Oh, gosh. Living and Dead. Yep. Daphne du Maurier, absolutely, mm. definitely. Celia Fremlin, I adore as well. I'd love to get into her head. Um, and my other two that I've already mentioned twice already, Anna Blyton and the Agatha Christie. I reckon I'd just get, get the ladies together. Yep. Would be ladies fantastic. night. Ladies night. But then, yes, I might add, I don't know which which man I would add in there. Probably Dylan Thomas. Just because oh, he'd, interesting you know, case. yeah, just because he'd keep the party going. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the beginning of your career? Mm, that would definitely be make earlier connections with writing communities. It took me a long time to realise there was such a thing and to be brave enough to get out there, like a really long time. So I wish I'd started much, much earlier making mm. those connections. Yeah, so join a writer's join something like the Writers' Centre in Brisbane yeah. or in your local area. Go join online groups. Just, yeah, definitely that's what I would have done. Mm. Now, you've mentioned a little bit, but my, my last question is what are you working on now? 
So working on this novella, um, which I'm not sure what the name of it is going to be yet, but inspired by uh, cigarette cards. Uh, I'm also doing edits on a time travel novel, which I'm having lots of fun with. Sorry, time travel short story, mm. um, which I had, I, you know, it's they're basically they've bought it, but I just need to extend my ending. So working on that. And then we'll be working on edits on the crime novel as well. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Are you allowed to tell us any more about the crime novel yet? Well, people who people even who've been to GenreCon a couple of years ago would have heard have heard me talk about it for years. I've been right. working on it for a long time. I call it my old Parliament House novel, mm. and it's basically a woman who runs ghost tours in her very big old house uh, is home invaded by a group of men who all escape somewhere like Goulburn Jail. Right. And okay. how she manages and how all the every room in the house has an amazing history. So it's a lot about her history and the history of the house and what happens next. Is so. the house really haunted? Well, you'll have to read it. <laughs> um, this is, it's funny. So this is one of the things that I have been talking with lots of people about. It. So I'm, I am a great believer. Like, I don't mind an opaque uh, story or an opaque ending, but I think the author needs to know. So I need to know what the answer is. Yep. Uh, maybe opaque in putting it down on on the paper, um, what that is. But I yes. So, but I'm not going to say you've got to read the book to find out. <laughs> I'm also working on. I've got a podcast that I've been um, doing with a couple of friends, and so we've been doing some okay. some work on that and recording that called Let the Cat In. Let the cat in. Let the cat in. So it's all about the ideas that come scratching at your door and won't let you go. And built around, we have guests on, and it's built around them bringing an object um, that they've either written a story about or that they can tell us a great story about. And we just kind of riff off that. And yeah, that's okay. that's really fun and inspirational. And love getting together with my other two and talking and about that. Can we find that on iTunes? Yes. Yes, oh. it's on all the things. I'm. Opening my feed now to add it to my library. Oh, good. Well, I think you'll enjoy it. Garth Nix is the most recent one. He, we've just put up our episode with him, which was just fascinating because he's a fascinating person. Um, we've had Dan O'Malley. We've had uh, Melinda Smith, a poet. Um, we've got Isabel Carmody coming up. Oh, very exciting. I've just yes. pressed follow. There you go. Oh, good. Also... Oh. Well, look, I hope you enjoy it. It's kind of funny. My husband listens to it while he's doing his ironing with his headphones on and he chuckles away, which I think is quite delightful. makes me very happy. <laughs> but we talk about all sorts of interesting things. We go off on wild. That sort of thing I was saying before about uh, when you're with a group of writers, you can have these wild, meandering, fascinating mm. conversations, and I just love it. Well, that's Very the thing good. I'm loving about my podcast at the moment is getting to speak to such interesting writers um, yeah, and yeah. learning something new every episode, which is great. Yeah, um, fantastic. But I'll include your podcast link in my show notes as well so listeners oh, can you. follow as well. Thank you. So thank you very much for joining me today, Karen. If anyone would like to attend her workshop on Friday, they just need to go to www.genrecon.com to purchase tickets. Um, and especially if you're interested in writing in the horror genre, it'll be great to pick up some tips from Yeah, Karen. yes, and other genres as well, though, definitely. We'll be doing work with characters, and I'm going to actually be making people do a bit of a show and tell. I'm going Because uh -huh. everyone's at home, so I'm going to be able to do some... Yeah. Fun little things like that with them. Amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so That's much for joining cool. me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's fantastic. It's been great fun. Writing stories for children can seem like a very simple task, but there is a skill involved in bringing memorable characters and their worlds to life. 
Anyone can write a picture book, but not everyone can write a picture book that becomes a child's favourite bedtime story. The best children's picture books fire up their imaginations, evoke emotion, and stay within their memories forever. Authors Online was created to provide aspiring authors the knowledge, skills, and resources they need to become a published children's book author. Our extensive industry knowledge will be shared with you and provide you with the basic principles behind writing for children, picture book publishing guidelines, and updates on the current market and publishing environment. And as a special offer for Totally Lit listeners, if you go to authorsonline.com.au, you can apply the discount code of LIT20, that's lit two zero to access discount content at authorsonline.com.au. Karen's GenreCon workshop is running on Friday, February 18 from 10am till 4pm. You can still grab tickets at www.genrecon.com.au. I was excited to have a little play with the avatars today on Gather in preparation for GenreCon. I couldn't find a mohawk, but I found some cool options. I will be sitting in the seminar Finding Time to Write When You're Busy with Ellie Marnie on Saturday at 3pm. Please say hi if you spot my avatar. It does have our name on it, so you'll figure out who I am. I still have a spot to give away in this for this seminar, so send me a message on Facebook or email me at totallylitpodcast at gmail com uh, for your chance to win. Totally Lit is an independent podcast. You can help support us to continue to chat with wonderful Australian creatives by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our socials with your friends. You can make a contribution at www.buymeacoffee.com backslash totally lit. For those of you who know me, I am a kind of a caffeine addict, so you can keep me fueled with caffeine, and this will also help with equipment and podcasting platform fees, etc. I love to interact with our listeners, so feel free to say hello either by email or come and find me on social media. My email address is totallylitpodcast at gmail.com or you can look up Totally Lit Podcast on Facebook. I've also recently created a group on Facebook called Totally Lit Writing Community. It's a space to continue the conversation and share your writing successes, events, launches and latest projects. So jump into the group and say hello. Thank you for listening to Totally Lit and don't forget to go out into the world to read, write, create, ignite.